This is episode three of our CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. This episode continues the 2004 annual enrichment conference titled Together in His Presence Beholding the Wonder of the Trinity with speaker Bruce Ware. Here is session four, The Wonder of the Holy Spirit. Dean, thank you again so much for leading us in wonderful songs of worship to the Lord. Well, this morning we have the privilege of looking at the Holy Spirit. The spotlight is now on the one who doesn't want the spotlight. But I think the way we're doing this will actually honor his work. He seeks to glorify Jesus, and what we will talk about and try to make clear is that this is his ultimate mission. And so if we make that clear, I believe the Holy Spirit will, in our hearts, in our community, confirm to our spirits that this is what he wants. He is pleased when his work is done to glorify Jesus. A little review, just so we keep in mind the big picture of the Trinity here. There is one God, only one true and living God, affirmed in both Old and New Testaments, affirmed by the faith of Israel and affirmed by the faith of the early church, early Christians. But this one God exists in a way different than was conceived in Judaism. This one God is not a Unitarian God, but rather a Trinitarian God. One divine nature possessed equally and fully and simultaneously by three personal expressions of that one undivided divine nature. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally God. So the Spirit, the subject of our discussion this morning is fully God, not one-third God, but fully God. Yet it is not the Spirit alone who is fully God, but He exists along with the Father and the Son, each of whom possesses fully the identically same divine nature. So what distinguishes the Spirit from the Father and the Son cannot be that which they share in common. They all possess the same divine nature. They all possess the same essential attributes of God. The Spirit is every much as omnipotent as the Father and the Son. The Spirit is every bit as much omniscient, omnipresent, and all of the attributes that are true of God are true of the Spirit in their infinite fullness. So that which the the three persons share in common cannot be the basis for distinguishing what makes the Spirit the Spirit in a way that's different from the Father and the Son. So what then distinguishes the Spirit from Father and Son is not His nature, but rather His relationship to the other two. The role, the specific role that the Spirit has vis-a-vis Father and Son. So what is it then that characterizes the distinctiveness of this role and relationship that the Spirit uniquely possesses? That's what we want to look at this morning. And first I want to look with you at the Spirit's background role, background role in the outworking of God's purposes. The Spirit clearly is one who embraces and does not resent the fact that he has eternally the background position in the Trinity. Now I just let that one thought soak in a moment. I mean it would be one thing, wouldn't it, to, as it were, to accept and embrace a background position one that's in the, in the background, one that isn't in the spotlight, for a period of time, so that eventually you might be brought out into the spotlight and acknowledged. 
for the great work you've done. But here is the amazing thing. The Spirit embraces eternally the background position in relation to the Father and the Son. Even as we saw last night, and we'll look at this again briefly this morning, even when the Spirit has the role of authority over the incarnate Son, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, Luke 4.1. Even when the Spirit has that background, I'm sorry, that, that role of authority over the Son, his whole purpose is to advance the work of the Son to the glory of the Father. Amazingly, even though the Spirit has identically the same nature as the Father and the Son, though He is fully and equally God, yet He willingly accepts this behind-the-scenes position in nearly everything that the triune God does. In creation, redemption, and consummation, He willingly accepts the role of supporter, helper, sustainer, and he forsakes the spotlight. Such is the role of the Spirit. Well, let's look at this. First of all, as the Spirit assists the Son in carrying out the work of the Father, the Spirit assisting the Son in carrying out the work of the Father, Remember that the Son is empowered by the Spirit. Here are a couple verses, and thanks, by the way, now, right, let me just mention that uh, uh, Eric, and I believe his name is Eric, behind the, the, the blue curtain back here, and Dean and a few others thought, you know what, it would be helpful to put some verses up on PowerPoint, so they did this this morning, just bang, like that, it's done, and uh, we'll see if it works. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we are reminded, for example, in Matthew 12, 28, Matthew 12, 28, that Jesus said that he casts out demons, not by Beelzebul, but he cast out demons by the Spirit of God. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, Jesus says, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So how does Jesus do the work that he does, the miracles that he performs? He does it by the Spirit. Or another verse I, I mentioned to you last night, Acts 10, 38, Acts 10, 38, where Peter to Cornelius says, you know about Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So clearly, Jesus does his work in the power of the Spirit, and he knows this. Amazingly, this is as it was prophesied to be. In Isaiah 11, just to give one sample of this, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, the prophet speaks of a time, oh, there it is, good. A prophet speaks of a time when this Messiah will come from the shoot of Jesse. Jesse is who? David's father. And so obviously this is in the line of David that is being emphasized here. The shoot will come from the line of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Now, now look at what it says. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now have you thought about what this verse means in Isaiah 11, verse 2? that as the Spirit comes upon Jesus, this one in the line of David, this, this shoot from the stem of Jesse, who we know then is fulfilled in Jesus, as this one comes, he will have wisdom, how? The Spirit is upon him to grant him wisdom. He will have understanding of Torah, remarkable understanding of the law of the Lord. How will he have this understanding? The Spirit is upon him. He, he, will, he will be able to give remarkably wise counsel. He will have strength to do the will of God. He, he will have the fear of the Lord deeply rooted in his heart. How will this be? The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. 
Okay, so I mean, this, this verse indicates, you know what it's like, Isaiah 11 verse 2 is very much like the fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians 5. How is it that we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, missing one, self-control, how do we have this? By the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. So in Isaiah 11 2, the fruit of the Spirit in Jesus is his wisdom, his understanding, his counsel, his strength, his fear of the Lord. Okay, now, despite this, despite these clear biblical indicators that Jesus does what he does in the power of the Spirit, performs his miracles in the power of the Spirit, lives his life, Acts 10, 38, in the power of the Spirit, for God was with him. Despite that, Jesus does not go through his ministry saying, I honor the Spirit. I am here to do the will of the Spirit. Without exception, Jesus says over and over, I am here to do the will of my Father. So think of this. The Spirit then, assisting in every way that accomplishes the son accomplishing his mission, the son fulfilling his mission. And what is that mission? Is it to exalt the spirit who is empowering him? No. The spirit empowers him so that he can exalt and glorify and honor and please the father. It's, it's incredible. It is just incredible when you realize how humble the Spirit is. How willing He is to accept. Ongoing, the backstage role, the behind-the-scenes role, the, 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 the not-in-the-spotlight role of supporter, helper, and in, in the case of Christ, empowering Him from the very conception of Jesus all the way to by the eternal spirit he offered himself without blemish, Hebrews 9.14, uh, all the way through from conception to his death on the cross, empowered by the spirit. It is a remarkable thing. Even though Jesus does not regularly point to the spirit, Yet the Spirit empowers the Son every day of his life so that the Son can honor the Father. Amazing servanthood is exhibited here in the work of the Spirit. Amazing humility. Amazing love that the Spirit has for the Son and the Father. Now, secondly... Not only does the Spirit assist the Son in carrying out the work of the Father, but more, more specifically, the Spirit clearly seeks to glorify the Son. The Spirit seeks to glorify the Son. You remember from last night, John 16, 14, uh, a, a sort of uh, verse that just announces the mission of the Spirit. Jesus said in the verses that precede that I have more things to tell you that, I, that you're not able to hear now, but when the Spirit comes, He will reveal these things to you. He will take of mine to disclose them to you. He will glorify me, says Jesus. I love J.I. Packer's explanation of this in his little book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, that came out years ago. Packer says the role of the Spirit is to mediate the presence of Jesus. Mediate the presence of Jesus. So Jesus' words come through the apostles to us. Jesus' ongoing work takes place in the church. I will build my church, says Jesus. But what's the instrument by which that building up of the church takes place? More on this in a few moments. How does regeneration take place? How does sanctification take place? How does the building of the church take place? This building that Christ will do. By the Spirit, he accomplishes it. I, the Spirit will glorify me, says Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians 12, 3. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. 
Again, we mentioned this last night briefly, but it, it gives it, the job description of the Spirit, in, in a sense, in a very clear way. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Now, clearly he cannot mean, you cannot utter with your lips both, Jesus is accursed and Jesus is Lord, I just did it. It isn't an uttering with the lips that he's talking about, is he? What he, what he obviously means is no one can express as his heart conviction Jesus is accursed and have the Spirit. And no one can say as his heart conviction out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So again, look at what the Spirit has come to do. Exalt, not the Spirit, but exalt the Son. Exalt Jesus. He doesn't, the Spirit does not work in our hearts to well up within us the statement, the Spirit is Lord. He wells up within us the expression of the Lordship of Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. Here is another testimony to the fact. When the Spirit is present, what does he accentuate? What, what does he put forward? Jesus is the one who has come in the flesh. This is the incarnate Son of God. He is our Lord. Remarkable. The Spirit comes to glorify Christ. Okay, now let me show you some specific facets of this. You can see the Spirit's glorifying of Jesus in the whole work that he does that begins with revelation of truth. We'll see this in just a moment. Revelation of truth that is about the Son, even though the Spirit reveals it, the Spirit's interest is not in revealing himself, but revealing the Son to the whole process of becoming a Christian, growing in Christ, and our ultimate glorification. The whole process is Christ-centered, yet it is done by the Spirit. Let's take these. There are four of these elements. The first, revelation, which is done by the Spirit, which brings us knowledge of the Son. Revelation, which brings us knowledge of the Son. And here I want you to think with me about this. This, this is just fascinating. Most of you will remember the, the classic text on inspiration in the Bible. I don't have this one on the PowerPoint. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. Theopneustos. You remember this from Greek gentlemen? Uh, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So God inspired this book. All scripture is the product of God's out-breathing. Now, how does this happen? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For, now I'm forgetting how it goes, I better look at it. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So how does it we have this Bible that is in fact the Word of God? It is because the Spirit moved in the hearts of the writers of Scripture so that when they wrote what they wanted, I mean this is the miracle of inspiration, as they wrote the truths that were on their hearts with the words that they chose to use, that the Spirit was working in them so that what they wrote was simultaneously their word and God's word. It's a miracle, isn't it? 
I mean, it, 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 is, it is an example of what theologians call compatibilism. Two things are compatible, namely the free will of human beings, of a Paul, of an Isaiah, of a Moses, to write what they want to write. And as they write what they want, they write exactly what God wants them to write. So ultimately, Paul will say, this verse is not up there either, Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 3.16, I believe it is, I am glad that when you accepted the word that I preached to you, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you. So this is God's work through Paul's words. Okay, so the Spirit inspires the scriptures. And yet... What are the scriptures primarily about? Are they primarily about the Spirit? The Spirit inspires it. Hey, he puts himself center stage, right? Look at Luke 24. Luke 24, where Jesus meets these two on the road to Emmaus and chastens them a bit for their failure to understand things that have been written in the law already. And he says to them in verse, uh, verse 24, I'm sorry, verse uh, yeah, 24, uh, some of those who had been with us went to the tomb exactly as the w women had also said, uh, but him they did not see. And he said to them, to these two on the road to Emmaus, O oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Son to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. How did this happen? That the scriptures speak concerning Christ. The Spirit so inspired. The Spirit inspired the Word, and this Word is not primarily about the Spirit. He writes the book about the Son. He writes the book about Jesus. Or look just a few verses later in Luke 24, now with a broader group of disciples, he says to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. That's the three-part division of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The whole of the Old Testament is about me, says Jesus. How did this happen? The Spirit. The Spirit inspired the law, the prophets, and the writings to be fundamentally about Jesus. Let me give you another illustration of this that I think is so poignant. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And here Paul describes the fact that the revelation that he has received is from the Spirit and the inspiration by which he speaks this revealed word is by the Spirit. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Now get the, get the significance of this. How is it that Paul knows what he knows about spiritual truth? Verse 12, the Spirit has revealed it. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. That's verse 12. So revelation is by the Spirit. But it doesn't end there. The work of the Spirit doesn't end there. Then verse 13 which things, which things, what's he referring to? Which reveal truths, which reveal truths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. 
That's inspiration. So Revelation verse 12, inspiration verse 13, words taught by the Spirit are what Paul teaches. Now, if you ask Paul the question, what is the content of your preaching and your teaching that the Spirit has taught you to speak? Answer, well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us, it is, us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross. Or verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Or chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except the Spirit, Right? The Spirit's the one who inspired this. I, I, I seek to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Similarly, Galatians 6.14. Galatians 6.14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So here's the point. Here's the point. The Spirit stands behind this book. He inspired it. It was the means by which the God-breathed character of the Bible took place. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. How did this happen? Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it's the Spirit who works through the writers of Scripture to write what they write. And when they write, what do they write about? Jesus. Jesus. He's the centerpiece of the Bible. He is what everything points to in the Old Testament. It is what the New Testament expands on to explain and interpret for us the meaning of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. All given to us by the Spirit. Okay, so the Spirit then through revelation gives us the knowledge of the Son. Secondly, Evangelism. Evangelism, where the Spirit empowers the gospel of, of the Son. The gospel, not of the Spirit, but the gospel of the Son. Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for what the Father had promised. For the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power and you will be my witnesses. My witnesses by what empowerment? By the Spirit who comes upon you. So when the Spirit comes upon you, what will the Spirit seek to, to speak through you? Words about the Spirit? Truth about the Spirit? Hey, isn't the Spirit wonderful? No, He will work in you by His power to bear witness of Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes on something on this point that is well, probably not necessary to make the main point I'm making here, but it is so crucial in the day in which we live. There is a growing movement within evangelicalism. God help us. There are so many departures taking place from the clear orthodox faith taking place within evangelicalism. It is staggering. And in every case, I'm on a soapbox here, I'll get off it, but you know, in every case, you know what the common thread is in all these departures? It is an adjustment to the Christian faith that makes it more palatable to this contemporary world. It makes it more acceptable, less offensive. That's the common thread in every one of these departures that's taking place. It's less offensive. Now here's the one I'm concerned about at the moment. There is a movement within evangelicalism to say, oh, people outside of the knowledge of Christ have hope. They, they, they have revelation that is brought to them by the Spirit in creation, 
and perhaps even in their own religions, in Islam, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, in Shintoism. They have saving revelation available to them by the Spirit, though they have no knowledge of Christ. And so what's happening in this is a separation of Christ and Spirit. They like this notion of the Spirit being, as it were, a sort of independent, independent agent from the Father, and He's not connected to the Son. And so the Spirit can do His saving work, though the Son is not known. And so people become saved pagans. Some of them later may learn about Christ and become Christians. But they were already saved, according to this view. It's called inclusivism. Inclusivism. And it is a departure from what the church has held for 2,000 years. And, and it is unbiblical. Let me show you very quickly why it is so wrong to, to draw this conclusion. And, and in fact, the, the, the truth is very sobering. The truth is that people who have never heard of Christ are without hope and are destined, apart from knowledge of Christ and belief in Christ, destined to eternal condemnation. This is the truth. You can see why people would try to get out of this, why, why, why they would try to avoid it. But it is the truth. You know, I'm sure medical doctors who have to tell a patient that they have cancer don't, don't particularly like that. They'd like to get out of it. But think of what, the medic, what, what, we, what would you think of the medical doctor who, because he didn't like having to say that somebody had cancer, decided to tell the patient, you know what, the test results are back and you're just fine. What would you think? You would call that medical malpractice. Are you catching the drift of this? We have spiritual, theological malpractice going on in the church. Let me show you two passages. First of all, Romans 10. This is in reverse order, I think, of what I gave you, Eric. Romans 10. Verse 1, where Paul expresses his earnest desire and, and heart's longing for the salvation of his people Israel. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, and of course that is Israel, is their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Now get the significance of this. These are not Buddhists. The, the, these are not Muslims who have a zeal for God. These are Jews who have the Old Testament. But they're not saved. What does he say in verse 1? My prayer, my heart's desire is for their salvation. Verse 2, for I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness, which is an amazing thing to say to a Jew. Not knowing about God's righteousness, which must mean then what he it must be interpreted in what he says that follows. Not knowing about God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own. They wanted to be righteous by keeping the law. And of course, Paul, over and over again, establishes the fact it's not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ that we are saved. Though they sought to, to keep... Uh, Though they sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The point clearly is, though these Jews have the law, though these Jews have a zeal for God, though they are seeking before him to be righteous, they are lost until they believe in Christ. Now, if that's true for Jews, do we have any reason to think that Buddhists are in a better, better position? Or Hindus? Or Muslims? And then, of course, just skip down with me a bit. I don't believe I gave this to Eric. Uh, in chapter 10, 
A little bit further, uh, perhaps I did, verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call upon one of whom they have never believed? How they shall believe on one of whom they have never heard? How shall they hear unless there is a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings, good, good news of good things. How beautiful are the feet of those who go to preach the gospel so that people can hear and believe and call upon the Lord, and whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. My friends, this inclusivism doctrine is a cancer in the church. It is in evangelical churches that this is held and promulgated. This is not liberal pluralism that says, oh, everybody's fine. All paths lead to the same God. No, these people, these inclusivists claim there's only salvation in Christ. Christ is the only Savior, but you just don't have to know about him to be saved. There's saving revelation available in creation. It's not the case. Can I show you one more passage? It's just so important. Acts 10, Acts chapter 10. This is one of their favorite texts, that is, of the inclusivists, because at the beginning of Acts 10, Paul says, I'm sorry, Luke, the writer of this, says regarding Cornelius, I don't have this on the PowerPoint, regarding Cornelius, that he was a devout man, verse 2, Acts 10, verse 2, he was a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, gave alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. What does the inclusivist say? clear case of a Gentile, non-Christian, saved person. Clear case. Why, I mean, how, you know, Clark Pinnock in his discussion on this says, what Christian would not want this said of him or her? He was a devout man one who feared God with all of his household, gave many alms to the Jewish people, prayed to God continually, is that not a saved person or what? Now here's the amazing thing. Keep reading, Clark Pinnock. Keep reading. Now an angel comes to Cornelius and says, go send to Joppa and have Peter come here. The vision, you remember this whole story in Acts 10, the, the sheet is dropped and, and, and Peter's, oh no Lord, and, but then he finally consents and he realizes, oh this is all about the Gentiles, this rising, rising up and eating, uh, this, uh, this unclean meat. An unclean food. It's all about the Gentiles. So he goes and proclaims the gospel to Cornelius. Pick up with me in chapter 10 at verse 42. He ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, that is of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. End of sermon. Now whether it was Peter's intention to end the sermon here or not, I don't know. All we know is, as he spoke those words, the Spirit descended upon Cornelius and his family. And so they were baptized. And so even from just chapter 10, right here, you know what it looks like. You know what it looks as though Luke's point is. Luke, the author of this, you know what his point is? It was when they heard these words through Jesus, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. It was at that point they were saved. That's what it looks like. But you know what? We don't have to guess about this. We can look and find out this is exactly the case from chapter 11. Look at chapter 11. Pick up with me at verse 13. And he reported to us, this is, now, this is now Cornelius. Cornelius had told this to Peter, and Peter is reporting this back to the boys in Jerusalem. After all this happened, he went back to Jerusalem. And Peter said to the, to the men in Jerusalem, he reported to us, Cornelius reported to us, how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here. Now look at verse 14. And he, Peter, will speak words to you, Cornelius, by which you will be 
saved. Saved. You and your household. All right, so here, here we have a case in point where you realize though Cornelius was a God-fearing man, gave alms continually, prayed continually, think again of Acts 10 verse 2, though this was the case, he was not saved. What it indicates is how pious you can be and be unsaved apart from knowing Christ. Okay, all of this to say that the Holy Spirit comes upon those early disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit's work is joined to the work of Christ. It is not separated from it. There is no saving revelation of the Spirit that is not the saving revelation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen. Hence, missions is necessary. The hidden peoples of this world are without hope. I think we've let that concept just sort of dwindle. It's, it, 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 it's sort of like soap on the floor of the shower. You know, it just, over time, it just sits there and it just vanishes. It gets soft and mushy and after a while it's gone. There is no hope apart from knowledge of the gospel. And the Spirit has come to empower witness to Jesus Christ. Third, revelation, which is the knowledge of the Son, evangelism, the gospel of the Son. Third now, conversion, which is faith in the Son. Conversion happens by the Spirit. You remember in John 3, Jesus with Nicodemus. John 3, and he says in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So it requires the work of the Spirit to bring about what the Bible calls... Regeneration. Regeneration. It is the work of the Spirit to awaken a dead heart, to give life to a dead heart, to open blind eyes. You see, because the condition we are in, every single one of us, every single person, apart from the work of the Spirit, the condition we are in is blind and helpless absolutely unable to respond positively to God. Do you believe it? Let's look at a couple passages. Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. Paul makes it so clear. The mind set on the flesh. There's two kinds of people for Paul. Those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. These are unsaved and saved, respectively. The mindset of the flesh, this is the unsaved person, is death. But the mindset of the spirit, this is the saved person, is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh, the unsaved person, verse 7, is hostile toward God. That is the true God. Not a God of their fabrication, not, not a God they've made up, not a God of their culture, but the true God. They are hostile toward God, for it does not, the mindset of the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God, and it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you think putting faith in Christ is pleasing to God? Yes, it is. The mindset in the flesh, those who are unsaved, cannot please God. They cannot put faith in Christ Jesus. Here's another verse, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, where Paul says concerning all 
of those who are perishing. That's all unbelievers. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They can't see it, much less believe it. It requires the work of the Spirit in their hearts to open blind eyes, to awaken dead hearts, to believe in Christ. This is why, my friends, Paul in particular is so jealous that God gets all the glory in our salvation. We have no part in it for which we can take credit right? By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. It is the work of the Spirit. Every one of us in here, every one of us, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, He is your hope. You see Jesus and His atoning death as as God's gift to make the payment for your sin, if you have come to see that as true and glorious, then it is because the Spirit has opened your eyes, the Spirit has awakened your heart to see the beauty of Christ fall before Him and put your hope and trust in Him. He gets all the glory in our conversion. Now, what does he point to? What does the Spirit point to? Jesus. Jesus. Again, conversion is not about the Spirit making much of the Spirit. The Spirit makes much of Jesus in our conversion. All right, let's move on. I'm going to skip a couple of verses I gave you, Eric. Sanctification. Sanctification, the fourth point, we looked at revelation, which is the knowledge of the Son, evangelism, the gospel of the Son, conversion, faith in the Son, and now sanctification, renewal toward the Son. Sanctification, renewal toward the Son. 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. What a great and glorious verse this is. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, and this is from the Lord, the Spirit. What does the Spirit do to cause us to be more like Christ? Well, according to this verse, what he does is he focuses our attention on Jesus, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, as in a mirror, because we, we don't see him fully, clearly, as we one day will, face to face when we see him. But he focuses our attention on Jesus, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. He focuses our attention on Jesus. Do you know this principle? I think I talked about it last year with you. Do you know this principle? It's worth gold. We become like what we love. We become like what we love. We long to take on the characteristics of that which we adore. What we worship, we seek to pattern ourselves after. So the Spirit focuses our attention on Jesus. We behold His glory and we are transformed from glory to glory. I take it that that means in that passage in incremental ways, incremental degrees of increasing amounts of glory. We become increasingly Christ-like from glory to glory, more glorious in our display of Christ over time by the Spirit. So what is the, whole, the Spirit's whole goal in our sanctification? Is it to make us spiritual, 
like the Spirit. No. Look at the Son. Behold the Son. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are transformed. He says, look at the Son. Love the Son. Adore the Son. And you will be like the Son. And by the way, our ultimate glorification in the likeness of the Son takes place as we see the Son. Did you know that? 1 John 3, 2, I don't have this verse for you to look at, but 1 John 3, 2, uh, Behold, what love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we are children of God, and such we are, and we have not yet seen what we shall be, but when he appears, Christ appears, we will be like him. Now, don't miss the next word. It's gar in Greek. We will be like him because we see him as he is. It is beholding the sun. Now, imagine beholding the sun with sin-stained vision removed. Cataract surgery done. Clarity of vision restored. We see the sun apart from our sinful inclinations. And what do we do? We become like him because we see him as he is. Well, if that's how the whole process ends... 1 John 3, 2, how do you think the process progresses in life? Behold the Son. The Spirit sanctifies us by pointing to Jesus. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I mentioned to you it earlier. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the Spirit focuses our attention on Jesus. He is Lord. That's what he produces within us, is acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ. Finally, in the age to come, in the age to come, the Spirit will take the back seat to the Son and the Father. So what was true in eternity past, in the incarnation, through all of the work of the Son in, in our lives now as Christ builds his church, is also true in eternity future where the Spirit takes the back seat. For sake of time, let me just show you one passage. Revelation 5 Revelation 5, this great vision of worship that will happen at the end of the age when the Lamb, who was worthy to break the seals and open the book, this Lamb and the one on the throne is worshipped. Look with me at Revelation 5, beginning at verse 6. It's a glorious text. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Let me stop there a second. In verse 6, I think this is a reference to the fact that the lamb, Jesus, currently, that is currently at this point, this is post-ascension, you know, this is still future to where we are now, that the lamb Jesus has the Spirit yet upon him. He continues to be the Spirit-anointed Messiah. The seven spirits refer to the spirits sent out into the whole world, yes, to bring the message of Jesus to everyone, but it's the seven spirits of the Lamb, of Jesus. So the Spirit is on him. I take it in verse 6. Continuing, verse 7, And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the, and the living creatures, and the, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, 
that's the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The Spirit is there. But the Spirit clearly takes the back, the behind the scenes position. The Spirit is still empowering the Son. All that happened that is extolled in verse 9, worthy are you to take the, the book and break its seals, for you were slain, you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. How did this happen? As the Spirit empowered the Son to do it, and yet it is the Son and the one on the throne, his Father, who receive primacy in this worship. The Spirit willingly takes the behind-the-scenes position. He's present, but he's not upfront, being honored. Let's bring this to a close with four points of application. Marvel, marvel, first of all, at such deep and abiding willingness exhibited in the Spirit, such deep and abiding willingness exhibited in the Spirit to serve unnoticed without overt recognition, without singled out honor. Marvel at the deep and abiding willingness exhibited in the Spirit, to serve unnoticed, without overt recognition, without singled out honor. Though he is God, equal in essence to the Father and the Son, yet his role is consistently to defer honor, to seek to bring about the glory of another. And this is always his role. Do you think there's a lesson in that for us? I don't know about you, but I feel the weight of this so strongly. Why? Because I find it difficult for temporary times to take the posture of the behind-the-scenes person who is not recognized. Boy, there is something in me, I think it's spelled S-I-N, there is something in me that wants to be recognized, you know? And, and boy, to do something behind the scenes and nobody notices. No, and in fact, where my disposition would actually be to seek that the other person gets the recognition for what I enable. Well... Can, can, you can you relate to me when I say this? This is not of my flesh. This must be spirit empowered within us. To be this way and to imagine to have this position, this role, for eternity in the Godhead. Secondly, marvel at the Spirit's willingness to assume authority over the incarnate Son. So now he has this position of, I tell you what to do. Luke 4.1, Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led by the Spirit there. The Spirit has this authority over the incarnate Son, but he knows this is not permanent. He knows this is not ultimately for the sake of honoring the Spirit. The Spirit assumes this authority over the incarnate Son only to assist the Son in glorifying the Father. It's all about the Son glorifying the Father in this ministry, doing the will of the Father, not the Spirit. Marvel at even when He has delegated authority. He does not use it or assume in it that he has primary place. No jealousy, no bitterness, no resentfulness, 
but nothing but loving, caring, willing, joyful service. Third, marvel at the Spirit who does not begrudge the Son saying that the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. That, that the, the Spirit comes into this world after He's just empowered Jesus to do what He does. Now the Spirit comes into the world from the Father and the Son. He doesn't begrudge the fact that the Son with the Father has authority over the Spirit. You know, again, th think of siblings, you know, siblings in a home. You, you might accept the fact that, you know, Dad told me to do something if, if Dad told my sister to do something too, you know. And, and so we're both equals here in this, you know. But boy, if Dad tells my sister to tell me to do something, that's a different story. Right, Bonnie? It's a different story. And, and you, don't, you don't appreciate this. You know, if dad wants me to, t to do something, fine. He can just tell me. He tells me this. But don't have him tell you to tell me. You get the point. So here the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son. And he does not begrudge this. He accepts it. He embraces it. He joyfully, willingly takes the position of being third. All the time, third. Last, marvel at the harmony and unity of the love relationship within the Trinity. Marvel at this social relationship of joy, fulfillment. There is no bickering, no fighting. No, no disputing who has the right to do such and such. There is nothing but mutual support for what each is designed to do. And in that, in, in that differing, differing job description of the three, there is unity, harmony of purpose, and joy. Peace, love, fulfillment, satisfaction within the Trinity. Don't buy into the lie of our culture that says the only way that we can exist happily together is if we always only acknowledge everyone as exactly the same. You know, they're trying to do this in the school system now and it just kills excellence you know, you can't compete anymore because everybody's not the same. Somebody wins and somebody loses. Oh, how terrible that is, you know, in, in our schools. I mean, we, we have this cultural view that unless everything is the same, we can't be happy together. Well, look at the Trinity and marvel at where unity and sameness is at the level, or I should say the sameness is at the level of nature. But differentiation is at the level of person and relationship and role. And there is joyous harmony, peace, and love in the Trinity. Can marriages be like this? A husband accepting his place as head of the home. A wife accepting her place, submitting to her husband. And there is joyous harmony. Can it happen? Can, can it happen in a church where congregations actually recognize there is leadership designated by God in churches? Yes, we are congregational in our church government. But shame on us if we fail to acknowledge what the Bible says. And that is God raises up leaders, elders in a church to which we are accountable. Do you know the language in Hebrews 13 is the language given of children 
to their parents. Children, obey your parents. In Hebrews 13, it is of congregations obeying their leaders. Shame on us for establishing this egalitarian congregationalism that despises leadership. Shame on us if leadership thinks of themselves in superior positions rather than seeking as the Father with the Son, as the Son with the Spirit, to work together in harmony, unity, emphasizing, as Jesus did, I don't cast out demons by my own authority, I cast out demons by the Spirit, acknowledging the work done of another and celebrating each one's contribution. May God help us. The Spirit, what a beautiful case study in humility. What a beautiful case study in willingness to accept the behind-the-scenes place for the sake of advancing common cause, common mission, unified purpose, that what is good and right may be done. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time this morning, again, for the privilege of being able to spend these moments looking at you and how you in your own triune nature work. We are grateful, Lord, that your spirit has been so humble in seeking to exalt Jesus. And so we would long, Holy Spirit, to yield to you, to submit to you, to walk in the spirit, and in this to see Christ exalted more and more in our lives through our lips, through our witness, and through our relationships with others. May Jesus be supreme through your power at work, we pray, Holy Spirit. Thank you for this time, Lord God. We're grateful and uh, commit the rest of the day to you, and we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.